This podcast is brought to you by the ATMS, the Australian Traditional Medicine Society. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Nora Getgaudis, who's a board-certified nutritional consultant and a board-certified clinical neurofeedback specialist with over 20 years of successful clinical experience. A recognised authority on ketogenic, ancestrally-based nutrition, she's a popular speaker and educator and the author of the best-selling books Primal Body, Primal Mind, as well as Rethinking Fatigue. Nora, I'd like to warmly welcome you to FX Medicine. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, and thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm, I'm always happy to do anything with, with, with Aussies. <laughs> now, I, I've, I've got to say, I snipped off so much of your bio because you have done so much, not the least of which is something that's close to my heart, your affinity with wolves. But could you take our listeners through yeah. a little bit of your professional background and your awakening to paleo principles from being a, you know, a stock standard nutritionist? Right, right. So a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> I, I actually spent some time yeah, working with, um, you know, working with uh, wolves and and doing some work in wildlife science and uh, and I had a rare opportunity, uh, really kind of a once in a lifetime thing, to travel to an area that's just 500 miles south of the North Pole and spend an entire summer living with a family of wild wolves in the company of the world's foremost wolf biologist, uh, man by the name of Dr. L. David Meech who's uh, works for the U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service and, and the North Central Forest Experiment Station, which is out of Minnesota, and uh, which is where I used to live. But at any rate, um, and when I traveled up there, um, you know, we were going to be in an area that was exceedingly remote. The closest human village was uh, 350 miles to the south of us. And... Um, you know, there was a military weather station some distance away where we could store some things, but there, there was not going to be any grocery shopping. Uh, there was not going to be any foraging for plant foods or whatever out on the tundra. Right. You know, it was all permafrost. Um, uh, you know, really, whatever we could hunt or whatever we could haul in with us was what we had. And so, you know, when you travel to remote places in nature and, and under, you know, challenging conditions, you want nutrient density and lots of calories and whatever. So we had a lot of that rich foods with us. And, you know, I knew all this was coming, but at the time I was, uh, even though I was quite passionate about nutrition, even back then, um, this was back in 1990, 1991, uh, I, that were popularized or officially recognized in nutrition that everything, you know, was a low fat paradigm that, um, you know, your diet was supposed to be carbohydrate based. Um, I had the, at the time I had been, you know, just eating lots of big salads and doing lots of juicing and I was eating some meat, but I was trying to eat lot, you know, lean meat. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was trying to be a good girl for the most part. And I was still eating, 
you know, some grains and legumes and things like that that I don't consume anymore, but, um, or whatever. But I was quite concerned about what was going to befall my health uh, when I went up there and couldn't get my fresh vegetables, right? Yeah. Um, I thought, why, well, how am I going to make it through summer without that? And, uh, and but when I got there, well, actually on the way there, we stopped in a, in a remote, uh, Inuit village on an island that was south of Ellesmere Island, where I, where I actually spent my summer. Uh, and it was a, a little community called Resolute Bay and about 200 Inuit, I think living there at the time. And, you know, the people there were living so remotely that, you know, maybe once every other week or so, a small twin otter plane would fly in with, uh, you know, some different, you know, with the mail and some different provisions and maybe, you know, a few limp vegetables and some non-perishables. And then they had a, you know, grocery store that you could probably <laughs> touch, you know, stand in the middle of the store and touch all the walls, you know, small, small space. Um, and, you know, they carried some processed crap and, you know, things, you know, cereals and, and, and whatever yeah. else. Yeah. But the problem with all that is that, you know, it was expensive. And, uh, you know, the community, it's not that the community didn't like those foods. I think that they liked the taste of those foods. And in fact, now that they become more accessible, it's become a very real problem yes. for them. But back then, it was like too expensive. You know, the, the most practical way to live was through subsistence. And so at least 80% subsistence anyway. And so people would, uh, they would hunt, uh, you know, seals and walrus in uh, whales and, and musk oxen and polar bears and, you know, whatever have you. They would do their, their uh, certain amount of catching fish and whatever have you. And that's how they lived. And, and the front yards were basically the freezers. <laughs> You'd see dead seals in people's front yards and things like that. Really? Natural, you know, natural refrigeration. Yeah. Wow. And even in Arctic summer up there, it was still, you know, freezing temperatures. Uh, and uh, and I noticed, just sort of curiously, because I'm thinking, okay, these folks, they don't get salads up here. You know, there's mm. there's just no way. And, and there's they really don't have access to the supposedly healthy greens and legumes everybody else is supposed to be eating. And nobody here, you know, everybody here looks pretty healthy. I mean, people were not obese. Um, they weren't allowing uh, alcohol up there either, which was a good thing for yeah. them, I think. Yeah. Um, it was a dry, a dry community or whatever. So they, um, they basically uh, were eating meat and fat for the most part and not a whole lot else. And I didn't see people who were obese. I didn't, you know, they, everybody seemed really happy and well-adjusted. And uh, it just seemed like a peaceful, happy community. I just, you know, didn't see any problems. And the kids who were out playing on the monkey bars at, you know, 1 o'clock in the morning in the 24-hour daylight with their Teenage Mutant Ninja T-shirts on and things like that in the freezing temps, they were just happy and curious and well-adjusted and all kind of giggling and um, and asking lots of questions and just terrific, terrific kids, you know, and with rosy cheeks and everything. And, 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 and it was all kind of niggling at me because I'm thinking, how can this be? I mean, how can you have a people group that's living up here eating nothing but meat and fat, which are supposed to be the worst things we can eat? And that's what they live on. And they look great and they seem fine. So, and then I got to Ellesmere and I had another disconnect because, you know, where I expected to be craving you know, salads and juices and things like that. Suddenly, I found myself craving fat. 
for the first time in my life. Mm. And I spent the entire summer sitting on my backside on the tundra and not moving very much uh, because uh, the wolves would get upset if we moved around too much. They were quite comfortable with us and, you know, came to within even a foot or two of us uh, sometimes. But if we had to sit fairly still, and then they were comfortable. If we stood up and walked around, it was a little bit discombobulating for them. They'd get a little agitated by that. So fat, you know, so no working out, no going for jogs, you know, no, uh, you know, I occasionally took a stroll after, you know, after hours, you know, we, we would wrap things up and I, I would just sometimes go for a little walk on the tundra, but you couldn't walk very far or very fast because the ground was so hummocky, it was so uneven from all the frost heating and stuff. And so, um, needless I didn't move very much, sat on my butt was bundled heavily bundled against uh, the cold and it you know at at the warmest it actually got into well i I can only speak in fahrenheit terms excuse me but i'm (laughs) um, you know i'm not from a metric country uh but it was i think 65 degrees at one point was the warmest day that we had but mostly it would hovered you know around freezing or whatever but i i was very well bundled and comfortable yeah and uh and I was eating cheese and salami and, you know, just all these fat-rich foods, nut butters, nuts, uh, whatever have you. And then once a week, I would go to the weather station, and the officer in charge told me I could get anything I wanted out of the mess hall. And all I wanted in the mess hall was this huge bowl of butter, which I was heaping upon in you know, small pieces of toast and, and eating uh, one after the other until I was too embarrassed to continue every chance I got. And I thought, you know, um, I, I, and I couldn't understand why I wasn't gaining weight. And not only did I not gain weight, but by the time I went home at the end of the summer, I'd lost close to 25 pounds. Right. And again, I understand there's such a thing as a thermogenic effect. And I don't doubt there was, that was at play. But that wasn't the whole story. And again, based on everything I'd learned up to that point about nutrition, that should not have happened. Yeah. But it, and so... Uh, it it niggled at the back of my mind, and and um, until I got back to the states again, and then I happened to stumble across the work of Weston A. Price, and I don't know how familiar your listeners are to his work, but he was a nutritional pioneer that spent time studying, um, you know, native uh, in, indigenous and also Aboriginal cultures. Mm. Uh, from uh, you know worldwide over a period of about ten years, and he covered about a hundred thousand miles studying in the nineteen twenties, uh, late twenties and early thirties, uh, and discovered that wherever people had um, consumed a diet that was uh, you know native to their uh, you know to their culture, yep. uh, to their primitive or or traditional culture, um, that People were remarkably healthy and free of disease and, you know, dental problems and, uh, you know, skeletal abnormalities, birth defects. I mean, all the things, or metabolic diseases, God knows, the things that plague us today at at an extraordinary, um, you know, ever-extraordinary rate. And and what he discovered uh, after again, uh, you know, a full decade of doing this in countless cultures that he looked at, that among the healthiest people that he studied, uh, he discovered that there were two things. Now, mind you, we're talking people everywhere from the, out back in Australia where you are, 
to the you know jungles in South America, mm. Africa, to uh, the you know, remote Celtic uh, Isles and, and things like that, uh, northern uh, Canadian tribes, etc. Uh, obviously, we're talking about vastly different sources Huge. of food in, in some respects, yes. right? Lots, lots of different varieties of things. And the thing that I think of all too many people take away from Western Price's work is their, to their conclusion, it's just eat real food and you'll be fine. But Western Price was smart enough to ask a very important question. Among all of these primitive and indigenous and traditional groups that appear to be optimally healthy, that have nothing wrong with them, what do all of these different diets have in common? And there were two things he found that they all had in common, regardless of where they were in the world. Number one, they all consumed as many animal source foods as were available to them. In other words, there weren't any vegetarian or vegan cultures. He yeah. looked for them. He was extremely disappointed to not find one. Right. He was sure they had to be one out there, but he couldn't find one. So okay. um, they all, and, and the greater the variety of animal foods and things like that, you know, the better off they seem to be. But they all consumed as many animal source foods as were available to them. And then the second quality that was present in every one of these optimally healthy people groups was that... Um, the most important food in every case, the most sought after, the most uh, venerated in every case, was those foods uh, that were richest in both fat and fat-soluble nutrients uh, to the letter. So to me, what you have is a way of distilling down a kind of solid foundational framework that is true across the board. and then. What you have with, with all of these other differences is nuance. And some of those nuances may have, you know, added beneficially to their health, and others may have been, you know, on some level or other potentially compromising, except that as long as the foundations were in place um, and their genome was robust enough, which ours isn't anymore, uh, they... Uh, were able to compensate to whatever degree they needed to for the things they consumed that may have been less optimal for them. Right. I mean, it's, it's not rational to assume that just because our ancestors did something, we should be doing exactly the same thing, you know, um, because they weren't necessarily trying to extend their lifespan. Um, they were, you know, That's they weren't surviving, yeah. necessarily thinking in terms of, you know, of health. They were looking to survive. There were certain foods perhaps that they preferred and, and were able to, to, to seek out mo more consistently, but they would have consumed whatever they had available to them. But it's irrational to assume that everything that they put in their mouths that didn't kill them was, ne was of necessity optimal for their health, you know, much less ours. Mm. And so what I do in my work is I also, I mean, to, to me, the only rational starting place is the idea that the selective pressures that would have been present as an evolving species and, and the kinds of foods we would have most consistently had access to as an evolving species would have served to forge our basic physiological makeup and our most basic nutritional requirements. To me, that is the only rational starting place. But then beyond that, then, um, what I do is I apply those basic principles to human longevity research to kind of cross-pollinate these concepts and arrive at a more optimized 
version of what they did. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and we know that, that two things that are going to over, that are going to shorten anyone's uh, lifespan are uh, the excessive demand for insulin. And that's consistent across the board in, uh, you know, in longevity research. Um, and we also, um, you know, the excessive consumption of protein is also one of those things that can activate metabolic pathways that serve to shorten, uh, unnecessarily shorten our lives. We have a, we, the difference between the two things is that we do have a fundamental requirement for protein. And, uh, and I believe that it, protein is best gotten from animal source food. But, but there is no scientifically established uh, human dietary requirement for any form of carbohydrate food whatsoever. And we can manufacture all the glucose we need from a combination of protein and fat in the diet. Right, okay. So you can have an essential fatty acid deficiency, you can have uh, an amino acid deficiency, but there's no such thing. As a carb um, in deficiency? In our species, it's a carbohydrate deficiency. Ah. It, it, there, it's, it's, there is no such thing. Okay, but, but you know, like when we talk about these geographically diverse cultures, I, Australian mm-hmm. Aboriginals mm-hmm. is a classic because they were almost, because they were land, landlocked, they were snipped off from the rest of the well, massive continent. You know, the uh, Yongu in northeastern Australia, they get an appreciable amount of seafood. I mean, there were Aboriginal people groups that had access to, you know, ocean-based things. But I, but your point is taken. Yes, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, but but even Australian Aborigines, Australian Aborigines, um, started to make these breads or bread type. Um, oh, yes. foods, but out yes. of, you know, like toxic nuts, like cycads, you know, macrozapia or something, or, um, but they did it by not, you know, washing it in a stream, not one, not two, but three days and then pulverizing it, drying. It was just, it's, re- it's a really convoluted way of making a bread. Um, right. but they made, they, they all sought these energy rich foods to survive them. What I think is interesting though, is on a hunt, and you mentioned the words hunt, haul, and of course alcohol, only one word of which fits into mm-hmm. the, the jobs of accountancy, police officer, and nurse <laughs> in our Western society, and yeah. that's alcohol, you know. Hunt and haul. So uh, right. is the, the real problem of our society that we just don't move enough? Like I know that you said no. that you didn't move a lot, but you had to get to the wolves. No, uh, I no? lived right next to the den. So oh, really? I didn't oh, really okay. have to. and. And when we traveled, uh, we would follow the wolves on their hunts, but we traveled on four-wheelers. Look, uh, you know, our our prehistoric ancestors didn't have running shoes or gym memberships. (laughs) They moved. You know, they they had to hunt and gather, right? They had to move around and and do things. Um, But, you know, you you didn't have elite sports like, you know, we have where people are just pounding themselves into the ground one day to the next. I mean, I think your average Ironman triathlete would just completely befuddle of one of our prehistoric ancestors, they would have thought these guys were nuts. nuts and yet, yeah. those prehistoric ancestors um, probably could have outmatched them, you know, physically um, uh, in any one event. Yeah. And you know, the thing is, is that I'd say at least seventy percent of the equation is diet. I'm not saying that movement and exercise isn't important, but it is not the the the, the foundational. Um, 
it, it is not necessarily the foundational thing that we need to be focused on when it comes to health. I mean, I'm all for getting out and moving and walking and 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 engaging in activity and whatever else. Yeah. Um, that's it's really important for a lot of a lot of reasons, but uh, being sedentary doesn't help. Uh, no. But it's not the source. That's not the core of the problem. Right, right. A very high percentage of the fat we consume goes to replenishing and uh, rebuilding structure, like our brains, <laughs> our nervous system. Uh, our, you know, it goes to fueling our immune function, um, and and also making up virtually every cell membrane in our bodies and whatever is left over from that, you know, if we consume fat in significant excess of what we need, a certain amount of it may get squirreled away, but it's, it's not, uh, you know, if you have high triglycerides, I promise you the problem is not dietary fat. The problem is dietary carbohydrate. Right. That the majority of unwanted body fat that people have are, are the byproduct of excess carbohydrate consumption and not, Excess fat. However, I will say that the combination of fat is very, very bad. It's like taking a lit fuse and putting it on a powder keg. You kind of have to choose. And if you're going to choose between the two, you know, we have a requirement for fats and fat soluble nutrients from a variety of sources. We have no foundational requirement whatsoever, as, science, as established by science, um, you know, for, for carbohydrates of any kind. Not in any human, not in any textbook of physiology, any you know medical textbook anywhere. Yeah, Jeff Leach has commented against the paleo principles, saying that the Hadza tribe ate as much as thirty percent of calories from honey, but in season. Of course, unlike us, though, they walked to work. What's going on here? Yes, there was a study published actually looking at the Hadza. There was, in fact, the Hadza. Yeah, and also looking at. Uh, modern humans and gosh, I had I would have to dig to find that study, but I will tell you right now that where it was once believed that uh, our energy expenditure is what differentiated our you know our health and well being and our whatever between primitive cultures and modern days. It turns out, studying both the Hadza and modern Western culture, that in fact the energy expenditures from both groups were roughly the same and, uh-huh. and uh, were not distinguishable. Uh, we're not the distinguishing factor between, they just said, you know, we have to, we have to, uh, we have to uh, look to diet to account for these differences right. in the health and well-being wow. of, our, uh, of our. Nora, the, the foods you ate and lost weight on, when you mentioned them, there was there seemed to be a couple of little let's call them excursions away from you know ancestral diet, the paleo diet. You said there was a, a few carbs sure, that you sure. ate. Um, how much of a diversion away from a strict paleo, you know, diet can you make with let's say retaining some Western diet without compromising your weight loss and your ancestral sort of diet biochemistry, if you like. Right. Well, so much of it depends on how you define paleo. Ah, you know, okay. um, in my, you know, and, and there are almost as many versions of so-called paleo out there as there are individuals claiming to practice it. You're using a term that has become, you know, kind of entered into the cultural parlance, if you will, but, but, um, and there's certainly 
a, a bit of commercialism that sprung up around it. Yeah, sure. I selected the term primal only because, and I, you know, really the terms are probably exchangeable in most respects. Um, there isn't a, a, a technical definition of primal that's different, but I chose the word primal to describe things because I was, um, because it, it, it implied something older, something more right. basic, something more, you know, uh, more foundational. And uh, in my mind, to me, the term goes just a little bit more because paleos come to mean so many different things. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's there's there's, uh, you know, pre or uh, there's a sort of ice age paleolithic, if you will. And then there's the Neolithic, yeah. you know, they're Neolithic cultures. And the fact is, is that our world changed enormously um, of just a little over, you know, 10,000 years ago in and completely re-sculpted uh, the landscape and every living thing on it. And, we, you know, we're for 2.6 million years of our evolutionary uh, trajectory. We shared the planet with close to 120 um, species, uh, extra species of megafauna, these enormous herbivores uh, that, that vanished almost in the wink of an eye, you know, about 13,000 years ago in a fairly cataclysmic series of changes to our climate. You know, we think that the most current theory at hand that seems to have the most to back it up is that there were pieces of a comet that struck the planet. And, and uh, you know, our back and forth violently over a period of a, a few years. And, um, and, you know, these massive ice sheets ended up melting practically overnight. And, you know, at the end of it all, and uh, we were left with, a, a bottleneck of life on earth. Mm, it was mm. an extinction event that rivaled that of the dinosaurs. And, um, and so all of a sudden now, you know, we're living in a different world. The animals that we're hunting are leaner and more fleet of foot. And, uh, uh, as opposed to these enormous, you know, woolly mammoths and mastodons and yeah. giant sloths and Irish elk and aurochs and, you know, whatever have you. Um, and, um, and so, you know, we had to come up with other things. And most people's versions of paleo seem to extrapolate from more Neolithic indigenous, you know, tribal kinds of, of dietary concepts that are that are um, endemic to our more climatically you know, temperate world. And that isn't necessarily the world that we evolved in, you know. Yeah, I kind of didn't really answer your question uh, concerning the, you know, how far can we stray? And again, it, you know, a lot depends on how it is you want to define paleo. What I do, do use, the term that I use to actually define what I do and how I view things is, is, is a, I just recently trademarked this term um, and it's primogenic. In other words, Right. We're talking about a very low carbohydrate approach to diet that is moderate in its protein level. This is not a high meat diet, um, but that that protein, I believe, should be coming mostly from animal source foods. But animal source foods of absolutely uncompromising quality that are totally grass fed, organic, all that, um, and uh, and then a very wide variety of fibrous vegetables and greens. 
from, a, again, a variety of, of sources, uh, cooked, raw, cultured, however you prefer them, again, of uncompromising quality. And uh, um, I don't, I, I really don't embrace the use of dairy products, and a lot of people eating paleo do, uh, and for a variety of reasons we could go into, but yeah. uh, it, I would be digressing. And then this, ultimately, fat is used as the primary source of calories. Now, it, doesn't, it makes it sound like, you know, this is basically a fat-based ketogenic approach, but the fats come from an enormous variety of uh, both animal and plant-source foods of uncompromising uh, quality, being careful to make sure that there are sufficient essential fatty acids and uh, animal-based fat-soluble nutrients. And there, there are quite a number of them that cannot be gotten from plant-source foods that we have to have if we want to be optimally healthy. Yeah. And so, you know, as long as you're operating in alignment with those principles, I think you're fine. And as long as, you know, you're, you're as optimally healthy as you can be, you may have, is the degree to which you have wiggle room, right? right with right. respect to what it takes to remain optimally healthy. The problem is that we live in a world that is so uh, burdened with, uh, with toxicity, with compromise to our air, water, and food supply, um, with EMS, you know, pollution, with uh, radiation contamination now. Um, you know, our oceans have become cesspools of all kinds of things that, you know, are barely pronounceable. And, and you know, because of that, you know, in the, one of the things I'm fond of saying is that in the face of so many things that we seemingly have no control over, it's just important to take control of what we can and to compromise as little as possible. And I, I think that we're living in actually a much more hostile environment than anything our ancestors uh, could have fathomed. Um, most of what threatened them was quite tangible. You know, you had your saber-toothed uh, tigers, your yes. cantankerous woolly mammoths, your big storms, your volcanic eruptions, whatever have you, yep. you know, clim climate changes or, or seasonal changes, whatever. And for us, you know, we get to live in climate-controlled environments and watch Dancing with the Stars or, you know, whatever is on TV and feel uh, a certain sort of complacency about it all. But the fact of the matter is, is that uh, we have arranged most of what, most of what endangers us is not visible to us. You know, it's floating in the air we breathe. It's, um, That's you know, a really it, good point. It's, it's in the water that we drink. It's, it's in, you know, it's genetic modification of the food supply and pesticides and herbicides and, you know, a hundred thousand industrial chemicals around the world and water treatment facilities that not only, you know, even the most modern of them don't test for more than about 200 potential contaminants, but then we're adding contamination by dumping, you know, uh, fluorosalicylate into the water, calling it fluoride. And uh, with guys with hazmat suits, you know, dumping bags with skulls and crossbones on them and, and warnings to not come into physical contact with the contents are going into our water supply, mm. supposedly for our greater good. Mm. And, you know, we can go on and on about all of the things that are that are compromising us, but we're largely oblivious to it because we're not wired for paying attention to things that we can't see. 
the WHO put out a, a, a directive with regards to, you know, animal fat and certainly preserved animal meats um, as being probably carcinogenic, but they always and only mention animal fats. They never, as far as I'm aware, mention animal protein. No, actually, the World Health Organization announced, their announcement back in 2014 was that it was red meat was this probable carcinogen to humans. And of course, because it was a source of saturated fat, evil saturated fat. Look, for 2.6 million years of our evolutionary history, we've, we've consumed appreciable amounts of these fats. Um, and uh, the first cases of, you know, say, coronary thrombosis, actually published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and I believe it was 1911 or 1912. Um, and it was seen, you know, cardiovascular disease was seen as, as a strange, rare anomaly. It's like, whoa, you know, where is this coming from? And Dr. Paul Dudley White, who was personal physician to President Eisenhower at the time, um, was fascinated with this emerging area of pathology in, in human health. And uh, and he decided, you know, he endeavored to undertake the study of this emerging problem of cardiovascular disease. And his, and, and his uh, you know, Colleagues thought he'd lost his mind. They're like, "Look, you're so you're so brilliant. Why would you waste your talent on something so unprofitable?" And of course, by the 1950s, it was a leading cause of death. Mm. Cancer rates, you know, cancer among indigenous societies and even among you know older indigenous peoples uh, is is virtually non-existent. It has been a very 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 rare uh, instance, and yet all of a sudden. You know, cancer rates are exploding all over the place, cardiovascular disease exploding all over the place, autoimmune disease exploding all over all over the place, and on and on and on. And uh, did we suddenly start eating saturated fat and animal source foods? The fact is, is that in the last, um, you know, few generations now that, that, these, uh, that these official dietary guidelines and all of the Fearmongering around dietary fat for the first time ever or not ever in our in our history as a species um, that you know we actually uh, have reduced our intake of animal source foods and animal source fat and what has gone up instead is the preponderance of dietary carbohydrates both refined and unrefined. Uh, and also uh, vegetable oils, frankly, and, and all sorts of processed vegetable fats that are artificially saturated. Yeah. And this, of course, includes things like trans fats, but also interesterified fats, which are rapidly replacing trans fats in the marketplace, and they are just as bad, folks, just as bad. Um, and so uh, we know that, that malignant cancer cells have much, many more receptors for insulin than healthy cells do. That the one thing that cancer needs in order to flourish is glucose. That's, mm. that's the primary fuel for cancer. Cancer can't use ketones at all. Um, now, excess protein can be an impetus for cellular proliferation. And if you're pregnant or trying to become pregnant or you're a baby child or teen, you need the extra protein. You need to be able to make new cells. But if you're anybody else, consuming protein in excess of what you need to meet your basic requirements 
provides an impetus for mobile uh, for for activating a certain metabolic pathway we call mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin. That's a protein sensor. Yep. And when that pathway gets activated, it results in cellular proliferation. Um, and that you know, it's it's basically a a, a reproductive mechanism. Yeah. Is what it is, you know, yeah. it's your body looking around. Are there enough nutrients to make new life? If there are, then they get your body gets to work making new cells. Um, but if there aren't, something kind of magical happens. If you restrict your protein intake to just what you need, but not in excess of that, then what gets switched on instead, if you're also suppressing uh, your requirement for insulin at the same time by obviously minimizing carbohydrate intake, that what gets upregulated instead is maintenance and repair. And in fact, this is a loophole in Mother Nature's design that was designed to attempt to optimize our functioning in the face of what could be an apparent famine so that we can live long enough and be healthy enough in order to maybe reproduce another day. Yeah. And so this is a loophole we can all take advantage of. And that's part of my approach to things is to moderate that protein intake to just what we need and not, and not more. And because we don't need the carbs, leave them out with the exception of fibrous vegetables and greens. And then use fat. Fat is a free fuel in this equation. Fat does not actually activate any of these aging pathways at all. So fat can be consumed with, with you know, relative impunity if it's of sufficient quality, right? And, um, and the human brain is unique in all of the animal kingdom, including other primates, in that it is, it is the only brain in, in, on the planet that we know of that is capable of running full-time on almost nothing but ketones. Now, there are other animals that can, ah. that can uh, create a state of ketosis for brief periods of time under certain circumstances. Right. But we are the, the only species capable of making use of ketones as a full-time fuel, uh, especially our brains. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and in fact, we're born in a state of ketosis. The moment that we come, pop out of the womb and start suckling, ketones become the major fuel for brain development. And we don't start craving carbohydrates until adults start feeding them to us. Hunger and being time poor, the, the archetypical pressures on, of modern life and, and the power of, of convenience. Um, right. How do we overcome these? If we're already in the mill, how do you get, get people to break out and eat a more ancestral diet while they've got these cravings that have been driving them for so long? Right. Well, fill your metabolic wood stove with logs and not kindling, for right. starters. In other words, you know, um, the, the type of dietary approach I talk about in my books is the one in which you will be the least hungry. Think about how, you know, maybe whoever's listening to this might want to think about how they, how they might feel if they went for six or seven hours without eating anything, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, would you be, you know, after six or seven hours of that, would you be, would you, you know, how would your energy be? Would you be dragging a little bit? Would you be feeling a little bit irritable? Would you be craving something? Would your mood be a little wonky, um, brain fog? Might you be something that rhymes with itchy? Um, or, you know, once you've eaten a meal after not having eaten for a long time, uh, how do you feel then? Do you yeah. feel more energized? Do you feel like, okay, now I can take on the world? Or do you feel more like taking a nap? Yeah. Well, if you said yes to anything, anything 
that I have just said, you have a problem. Yeah. Because none of those things are what are physiologically normal. You know, how are you supposed to feel if you haven't eaten all day? There's only one normal, healthy answer to that question, and that's hungry. And how are you supposed to feel after you've eaten? Again, the only normal, healthy answer to that question is not hungry. And if it's anything else, it's a problem. Right. And so by, by establishing a fat-based metabolism, you won't be hungry. If, if, if you want convenience, you know, you can try to make larger meals, you know, once a week, sit down, make some stews, make some soups, make some things that you can prepare in bulk, you know, big roasts, whatever, and then a portion up into small containers and freeze and, you know, and heat up or whatever and, and live on for the rest of the week. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's relatively convenient. You'll be doing a webinar for Australian health practitioners for the ATMS on June the 5th, yeah. uh, titled Rethinking Nutrition and Brain Health. Can you tell us just a yeah. little bit more, without without giving too much away, away, about what you'll be discussing, what practitioners can take take home? And I'm going to work in a second question into this. And and will you be discussed? Yeah. Will you be discussing how to break your intermittent fasting? How to break fast? You know, I'll basically be, you know, helping people think in terms that. You know, we talk about a mind-body connection, and I think of that as a myth, that the brain and the body are part of the same either functioning or dysfunctioning system. And they have to be understood together in context. You can't, most, last I looked, most people's heads are screwed onto their bodies. <laughs> um, and so what impacts our physical health is invariably going to have an impact on our, on our brain health, right? Our, our mental, emotional, and our cognitive functioning. And so we, we have to understand that, you know, our body is our subconscious mind, that, um, that we, these things are not inherently separate. And a lot of people have real problems seeing those things as part of the same thing. Yeah. Um, I know people that think that as long as they're not catching a flu bug and they can get up and they're, you know, they're above ground every day and going to work and they, you know, whatever, seem to do okay, that they're, that they're physically... Uh, you know, that they're healthy, even if they're depressed or anxious or they can't focus well, or maybe they, you know, they have other kinds of neurological compromises. That's not necessarily by most people recognized as being a part of intrinsic foundational health. And uh, so understanding the way, ways in which these things work together and uh, what the foundations are of optimized brain function and uh, how that can have an impact on virtually everything that uh, adversely, uh, you know, everything that is, you know, a mental, emotional, uh, or neurological disorder. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was, it's going to be a, quite a wild ride, but I think it's going to be fascinating for starters, and I think really uh, paradigm shifting mm. for a lot of people that that listen uh, or that that that, uh, that uh, participate in that webinar. 
Well, you've really made me wake up about a couple of concepts which I thought were, you know, the the new way, if you like, or the correct way of doing things. And it's like, hang on, mate. You know, we're going down this marketing yeah. thing. Like, you know, for instance, how, how often have you heard paleo dessert? <laughs> um, exactly. <laughs> Just don't even get me started. This is why I coined the term primogenic because yeah. I, I feel every time I get up, in, you know, in front of a paleo audience or Somebody, or even ketogenic is is equally becoming commercialized yeah. now and means all kinds of different things and there are cookies and cream keto bars yes, and things like that right. i mean I'm, I'm ready to tear my hair out of my head i feel like i'm trying to fit myself like a square peg into a round hole <laughs> because what, what was it, what was inevitable with this because it's it's it struck a nerve there's something about the paleo concept that seemed rational and logical to a lot of reasonable people yeah but what was inevitable was that industry was going to look for ways of co-opting that and taking it over and commercializing it in a way that became profit-based instead of, you know, instead of something designed to actually optimize health. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and our culture is very, very vulnerable to those, to those marketing gimmicks. And unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of people out there making a lot of money telling people what they want to hear and selling people things that may taste good but may not do a damn thing to benefit their health i mean if you have you know a box of organic uh gluten-free non-gmo brownies you know that are paleo paleo friendly or whatever else it's still crap Mm. you know by any standard so but these things you know just because you have something with a subtle thing wrapper and a caveman stamped on the label or something like that this is supposed to be you know, an ancestral food, and that's just not, you know, frequently the case. And so I, I'm careful to distinguish. I, I've got to urge all of our listeners to get your books. Um, look up on your site, theprimalbodyprimalmind.com, primalbody-primalmind, and to tune in to the ATMS uh, webinar on June the 5th, 2018, that's Australia time. I'll certainly be listening in. And I've got to say, if you ever come to Australia, I'm going to treat us as Tatooine and I'm going to get you a lightsaber. (laughs) Excellent. And I thank you so much for taking me through, you know, really exploding some myths around uh, paleo and primal diet and what we really should be awakening ourselves to. Thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Oh, it's, it's been an honour and a pleasure being here. And, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast is brought to you by the ATMS, the Australian Traditional Medicine Society.